Amen and amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here this morning. We are um, celebrating this month our 10-year anniversary, and so we've kind of paused on our sermon series through Luke, uh, which only feels like we've been studying for 10 years. It's not really been that long. Uh, but we've pushed pause on it, and we're just kind of remembering who uh, we have been called to be, remembering the foundational uh, perspectives and purposes of the church. And, and so we've, we'll, we'll have this week, and we've had a few weeks already. We'll have two more weeks of it this week and next week um, to, to go over it. So I'm going to start with some of just our visional statements um, uh, that, that I hope will be helpful. For those of you that were here last week, it won't be quite as long. Uh, because we got too many other things to go through. So, but, but in fact, I won't, I didn't tell this to the first service. Uh, as we finished last week, I got out and I was talking to Amy, uh, for you that don't know me, it's my wife. And we were talking and, and she said that Tristan, my youngest son, when I got done and said, this was the introduction, he leaned over to her and said, he just preached a whole sermon. And so anyway, it won't be that long, uh, but I'm just drawing it out. So let's get to it. So here we go. Because of the gospel. We are who we are. We are no longer sinners, but saints. Doesn't mean we don't sin, but that's not how God measures us. He's given us a new identity. We're no longer sinners, but saints. We are no longer aliens, but citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer strangers. We are sons and daughters of God most high. We are sons of the king. Because of the gospel, we are who we are individually. We have a new identity, each one of us, but we also are who we are Corporately, because of the gospel, we are members of God's big C church, the church that spans generations and locations and peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are members together with that church because of the gospel, but because of the gospel, we are also united in his local body. He did that work on our behalf, giving us new identity individually and corporately. Because of the gospel, we are who we are. And because of the gospel, we do what we do. A new identity leads to new activity, right? So because of the gospel, we worship and lead others to worship. This is the idea. This is the, the very purpose for which God has given the gospel to glorify himself so that we as a people can finally worship and devote ourselves to the one thing, to the primary one that deserves it, himself. Because of the gospel, we worship and lead others to worship. We do not define worship as some, some moment in which we sing songs. This is, is worship, but it's not the fullness of worship. We worship in life. We define worship as awe, reverence, gratitude, these internal convictions, these internal reactions to who God is. Awe, reverence, a right fear in respect of him, and gratitude because he has not condemned us, but has been gracious toward us. And that then gives way to a life of adoration, devotion, and obedience the worship isn't captured in this moment by itself, but in every moment that we live every day. And so we unite in this mission of worship. We are a people, because of the gospel, we unite in this mission of worship as members of Christ's family. We serve one another selflessly with God-given gifts and abilities to His glory. As an act of worship, we serve each other. Not an, not an act of worship to each other, an act of worship to him. Because of the gospel, we, we proclaim that gospel to advance his kingdom 
and multiply his worship. That's, we, we, we talk about that a lot. We've, that's been who we've been striving to be now for 10 years. But I would suggest, and I would suggest this gently, as the scripture I'm about to read calls us to speak truth to one another in love, I would suggest this compassionately and with love. We are not only fully these people yet, but we don't fully do these things yet. We are not a people who worship and lead others to worship completely. I mean, let's just be honest. If I can, if I, I'm going to just be as, I, I won't use this as my confessional. I'm not going to give you my list of sinful struggles that I have. But to be open and honest, I feel and I know that the, 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 the competition in my heart, the, the, the competing desires... The competing devotions, the competing, the competing uh, uh, things that I, I long for. I, I, I feel that. I sense that. The, the competing things that I give myself to. If I can see that in my life. And that I don't worship with my whole heart and my whole life. If I can see that in my life. And I, and I can see in my life that I have not given myself fully to be one who leads others to worship Jesus fully. If I can see that in my life. Is it possible that you could find it evident in your life? Well, then how? How are we going to become these people who are given, because of the gospel, who are given to worshiping in all of life and by that very worship leading others to worship Jesus? How are we going to unite in this mission, how are we going to learn to self, selflessly serve one another to his glory? How are we going to proclaim the gospel to advance this? How, how are we going to grow to those people? How are we going to become those people that do those things? Every gospel mission, every gospel vision needs a gospel strategy. And I don't like making stuff up because I'm not really that good. So we're going to seek to live out a biblical strategy, a biblical gospel strategy. To see God's worship multiplied. To see his mission multiplied and this mission of worship multiplied. In us, among us, and beyond us, we're going to make disciples. We're going to mature disciples and we're going to mobilize disciples. This, that's the, that's the, the, the work that Jesus has left us to do. Those are the things that he's commanded us to, to accomplish, to become these people. This is what he says do. This is the strategy that he gives us. And last week we focused on the making of disciples, the equipping and the assimilating of disciples. This week we're going to focus on the maturing of disciples. The, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, making disciples is evangelizing and assimilating, bringing them in. This week we're going to talk about maturing disciples, which is equipping and empowering. Equipping, giving them the, what's necessary, growing them up. And empowering them, encouraging disciples to do the very things that God has called us to do. Getting out of the way so that God's people can do what God's people can do. By the power of his Holy Spirit. We're going to be in Ephesians 4. Uh, chapter, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I'm just going to say up front, we're jumping into the middle of the context. And we have to do that to some degree because I don't have time to give all the explanation of everything that's here. And if, if we're going to really see what needs to be seen, we've got to jump into the middle of this passage and, and look at what Paul is giving us. So we we'll begin reading in verse 11. He says, And... 
He gave the apostles, so the and, you see, we're coming into the middle of it, in addition to, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, I want you to hear this. This is not a suggestion. This is not some, something he thinks is a good idea. This is a command he's giving us. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the responsibility of every member of the church, to grow up together into the fullness and lightness of Christ, to grow up into Him. This is not just my responsibility, this is our responsibility to gather, to do our part, that the body continues building itself up in love. Now last week, I told you, we began last week talking about the making of disciples, the evangelizing and the assimilating of disciples, bringing in new disciples from outside the body, evangelizing. So we find someone who doesn't trust Jesus, who has never trusted in Christ or believed the gospel, never become Christian, never been converted. We could use a number of different phrases. And we evangelize that person. We preach the gospel to that person. We confront them with sin. Gently, we don't have to be jerks about this. In fact, if we're jerks about it, I think we're doing it uh, in opposition to how God would have us do it. Evangelize. Confront with sin and offer God's grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we hope to see people come to believe the gospel. We hope to see moments where people's lives are converted, where death is, is made life, and, 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 and people respond in faith to Jesus. They are made a disciple. They are given that new identity that every other believer has. We long for that. We don't, but, but we exist in a time and day in which, and live in a city in which we're surrounded by Christians. Surrounded by people who love Jesus, who in some cases are disconnected from the church. They don't have a church family to belong to, and then we need to seek to make them feel at home, or, they belong in, or they're, they're in churches now who aren't feeding them gospel goodness, but instead they're sitting around getting pragmatism and methodology. We need to find ways in which we see them come in and be made to feel welcome. If you, if you think about it in these terms, we're talking about making disciples in the sense that we are giving on-ramps, entry points, to this process Jesus has called us to, to multiply his mission of worship so that his worship grows in us, among us, and beyond us. That's the idea. And this is how we said that last week. This is the, the main point, the big idea from last week's sermon. And I want you to have it on your mind. To be Christian is to be sent by Jesus. It's the same, one and the same. To be Christian is the same as to be sent by Jesus. To make disciples that make disciples that multiply Jesus' worship. Now, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon last week. I mean, no way I can preach two in a row. Uh, you, you'll leave before I'm finished. Go back and listen. It's important that we understand this is a vital Part of the process that God has given his people to do. Make disciples. It is equivalent to being Christian, is being sent to make these disciples. But it doesn't 
end there. It doesn't stop at making disciples. The biblical process is make disciples, mature disciples, mobilize every disciple made so that the true and right worship of God is multiplied. So today, the big idea that we're taking out of this text, one of the things I think is clear from this text in Ephesians is this. Jesus' mission for the church doesn't end at making disciples but prioritizes maturing every disciple made. So his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. Let me say it again. It's long. Pay close attention. Jesus' mission for the church doesn't end at making disciples but prioritizes maturing every disciple made. So his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. And, and, and I don't have to try real hard from this text to show you how big a priority this is to Jesus. First, just consider the city that this letter is addressed to. Ephesus was a pagan city filled with temples to other impotent, powerless, dead, false gods. There were no Christians there until the gospel reached it. And as the gospel came into Ephesus, people began to be made into believers. Dead people began to live. Not, not in a physical resurrection. I'm talking about a regenerative, regenerative sense that where, where spiritually dead people were made spiritually alive. And, and, and soon the church begins to be established in Ephesus. And it disrupted the city. I mean, there was, there's a point in the, in the story, you go back into Acts, and you can go back and see where, where there's a point in the story where the economics in Ephesus were upended, were turned upside down because Christians were no longer buying and selling the things that were being bought and sold in the marketplace. And so they go into the, they go into the Colosseum and they riot over Christianity. It made a huge impact on the city. But there's another point where we see how big and how important it is that, that, that these people don't just get made to disciples, but they get grown into disciples when Paul writes to Timothy, a son in the faith, and he says, hey, if someone needs, wants to be an elder, look for this in them. If, if you're going to make somebody a deacon, look for this character trait in them. It was moving past the idea that they no longer were just going to be sitting there. And, and here's another thing. If he hadn't thought that Jesus intended his disciples that were made to be the same disciples that are matured, why in the world would he ever have written these verses? They would be unnecessary. There's no need for them if this is not God's plan and Jesus' mission in and among his people. And we know it's not Paul's mission. We know it's not Paul's desire first. And then Paul came up with this great idea and this great methodology. It's Jesus' mission that Jesus has prioritized and handed to Paul. And we know that because Jesus is the one who does all the giving of gifts. In fact, we don't have time to do it all, but I, I just go back to verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul didn't give a gift. Jesus did. Then it talks about how Jesus, ascended, Jesus descended and ascended. And it says in verse 11, and he gave. Not Paul gave. Paul didn't come up with this structure, this idea, this methodology. This is Jesus' plan. This is Jesus' priority. And Paul is simply recording it, expressing it, and showing these disciples, this church that he had planted. You can't just be a people who are made. You must also be a people who are matured. 
And consider how God, Jesus, how he's gifted the church. He didn't just gift the church with a bunch of good little gifts about service and, and, and oh, this person is good at, I don't know, I, this, this person can speak in tongues and this person can translate. He, he didn't just do that. Look at the types of gifts that called out in this passage. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. For the very purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus is so given to the maturing of his disciples that he has made that he actually gifts some of his people to do the work of seeing them mature. He didn't leave anything undone. He didn't leave any thought out. Like he's got a plan. He's, he's left people for the very specific purpose of equipping. And, and this isn't like I'm going to give you the right tools. Like I'm going to give you, you know, you're going to go mountain climbing. So you got to go get your rope and your, uh, I don't, I shouldn't have picked mountain climbing because I don't know much about it. But I know they use rope. And rock climbing, I know they got the right kind of shoes and, uh, you know, those things that you stick in the wall that keep you from falling. I don't know what those are called. Probably some D-rings and things like that. I'm guessing. I don't, I don't do that stuff. I mean, I'm too, too heavy to do that stuff. Like, I don't, I don't go pull myself up things. That, 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 it's not the idea. In fact, the word in the original language, kartitsmos, it means make ready, bring to completion, to perfect. There's this picture being painted that when a person is made a disciple, they are like a diamond in the rough. That, they, that, they, that they're a carving from wood that hasn't, like they're, the artist is looking at it and says, oh, I see a beautiful statue here. And it's a carving away of the old stuff. A removing of the pieces that keep people from seeing the work of art that lays beneath the surface. This perfecting process that, that as it's honed and sanded and smoothed and, 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 and polished, that the image and the beauty and the majesty of our creator God who chose to be our savior and put on flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus begins to shine so that people can see them or they can see him in them. You see, this isn't a stool. It's not, I mean, it's not a, an outfitter's store where we go to buy the tools. This is a people who, by God, are gifted for the very purpose of shaping and molding and completing and perfecting. He wants you to mature so, so intentionally, so purposefully, that he's gifted people for that very purpose. Jesus' mission for the church does not end at making disciples, as vital as that is. As important as that is, as we must give ourselves to it, kind of mission that it is, it doesn't end at making disciples, but prioritizes maturing every disciple made. So his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. But unfortunately, and I don't, I don't like to beat up the bride. Jesus died for her, right? I don't, like to, I don't want to just talk bad about the church, but it's an unfortunate reality that for some, so much of the mainstream church, that they have lost sight of this. For decades, they have been counting their effectiveness in, in making disciples, not on the number of disciples that mature, but based on the decisions that they get people to make. 
See, by doing this, what they've done is they've developed these processes by which you can make a decision but never really exercise your life as a disciple. Let me just play this out practically in a, in a setting. I've got a friend. We've talked about this before. and We haven't talked about it. He and I have talked about it. And I, I think he loves Jesus. I think his motives are right. I think his methodology is off. But in his church services, he'll, he'll, um, uh, he'll finish his church service. He's a preacher, and he'll finish his service with a bow your heads, close your eyes. And oh, by the way, if you want to become a believer, raise your hand. Okay, if you raise your hand, why don't you repeat these words after me, pray this prayer after me, and, and you'll be saved. And will you come talk to me after the service? Now first, let me say this. That's kind of how I was saved, so I'm not trying to diminish the fact that God can save people through that method. But what happens is, is that they take this methodology, and, and you, see, you, you can see, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I don't want you to go looking it up and trying to figure out who this person is. That's not my intention. <clears throat> I don't know that you, any of you know him, but what they do in, then is promote all these people who have given their life. Notice my air quotes because I think it's air quotes worthy. They begin to promote to everyone around them how many people have given their life to Christ. And they, they applaud those numbers and they put those numbers out there talking about how effective they are in the making of disciples. Here's my struggle with that, and here's why I think it's a problem. Because as proud as they are, and they're not just the ones proud of these numbers. Like, other people are proud of these numbers, and they get put up in front of people as a disciple-making church. But here's my problem, and it's been part of the discussion that I've had. The numbers that they're proud to promote are those people say a prayer, walk an aisle, and do these things, and let him know I've done these things. The numbers that they can't tell you that they're not proud to talk about are where those same people are today. They said a prayer, and they may have never came back. But yet, they'll still tell everybody that those people are Christian. And I don't know. Maybe they are. But how can they tell? George Whitfield was challenged once, or asked once, so how many... How many people do you think came to know Christ in this meeting? He said, I don't know. I guess we'll know more in six months. You see, here's the problem is that we've, we've given this process of salvation and disconnected it from the biblical process of maturing those who are saved. We're not, we're not entering people who are made into disciples into a process of maturing those disciples when in reality, in reality, the truth, the, the only way we know that a disciple has been made is that that same disciple begins to mature. You can't say I'm a Christian if just because you said a prayer at some point, but you've never followed Christ. You can't say that I'm a Christian, not truly, you can take the label, but, but you can't say I'm a Christian if I walked an aisle and I said a prayer and I got baptized, but yet my life is mine and I couldn't care less what Jesus has to say. I'm not going to submit to him. I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. And he's going to take me into heaven when I die because I said that prayer. That is not the life of a Christian. That is not the biblical process by which we've been given to see people come to know Christ, be made into Christians, 
and then sit around and do nothing about it until one day they die and they got their get out of hell free card. They're going to show up at the gates of heaven and it's not going to be St. Peter standing there. It's going to be Jesus and even say, get out of here. I don't know you. We should be grieved by this kind of junk. The biblical process is to see every disciple made, see them matured. We'll know they've been made when we see them maturing. And we'll know they're maturing because we know they've been made. Because a living person can't help but be a person who lives. Dead people can only be dead. That's the biblical process. That's the biblical model. Well, how are we going to define Let's define this out. Just so we can see it. What's the maturity we're talking about? Again, I think you hear, I think you understand, you're smart people. We're not just talking about age and experience. We're not talking about, well, well, this person's been a Christian for, uh, well, not 100 years because most of us die for that. But this person's been a Christian for 20 years, must be very spiritually mature. Man, it just doesn't work that way. Paul was a Christian for all of about two days or three days, and he's up preaching the gospel. And it had a level of maturity that most of, most of us don't grow to in a lifetime. So we can't just speak about age, and we can't simply speak about experience. So what are we talking about? In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp describes this maturity like this. He writes it this way. Biblical maturity is never just about what you know. In fact, this is a big mistake. Big mistake we make. A person can walk around throwing around theological terms like eschatology and and uh, ecclesiology, and I don't know, you just you pick out some words that you've heard people use that you don't know. Oh, wait, I just used a Greek word. So, you know, that does not equate to maturity. Maturity doesn't equate, uh, uh, knowledge doesn't equate to, natur- to maturity. You can't be mature without some knowledge, but you can't, you, just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you're already mature. Biblical maturity is never just about what you know. It's always about how grace has employed what you have come to know to transform the way you live. What he's speaking about is maturity being that, that knowledge that gives way to renewal. Romans 12, 1 is a good picture of that. We know his word and we're renewed. And we know his will so we can do it. Biblically speaking, though, we're not, we're not necessarily given a precise definition. But I do think we have several Markers. And I would just point to to some of these. I I could pull passages from all over the place, but let me just point to a couple of these. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and he is part of organizing and shaping and and building up the church, strengthening the church so that it can continue there. And Paul says to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So he's about to write to Timothy about what it looks like or, or what an elder looks like, what an overseer, what a leader in the church looks like. Not just what he knows, but actually how you determine what he really knows and what he really believes by what he does. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not a violent, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how would he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You know what's interesting to me about this? He doesn't say when a person achieves these things, they're automatically an elder. In fact, not all of us are called 
to be elders. But if someone has a desire to be an elder, to be an overseer, can you see maturity in their life? These are not just simply marks of an elder. They are marks of a mature Christian who is in his character, maybe not his calling, that's to be tested and affirmed, but in his character, in his spiritual maturity, let's use that term since that's what we're talking about, that person is then qualified by his character to be an elder. There's still more things to figure out, but it starts with his character. If a person's not spiritually mature, don't you dare. Because it's, it's damaging to them and it's damaging to the church. He, he does it again when he writes to Titus. Titus is in Crete and he says specifically, I've left you in Crete to establish and organize and build structure in the church. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his ch- children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must be a mature person. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the idea. This is that there must be maturity leading the church. But it's not just people who are mature. Or it's not just leaders of the church that demand maturity. This is the kind of maturity that Jesus is calling all of his people to so that we might all grow up into Christ. That we might each play our part building up the church in love. We are called to be made disciples and then mature as disciples. I could give you another one. It's in 1 Timothy again. Deacons, we don't have time. We need to move on. But let let me just encourage you not to do this, not to pursue these things as a position to an office. Like, I'm going to become hospitable so I can be an elder. Become hospitable because it's the good that you need to do to the church. Become hospitable so that you can be part and take part together with the body of believers in seeing other believers matured and other disciples made. And then we see Christ's worship multiplied. To pursue these character traits as a a means of achieving some office or authority or power is not a demonstration of maturity. But it might demonstrate you're less mature than you believe yourself. But this passage from Ephesians helps us, I think, understand as well what it is to be spiritually mature, to be, to, 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 to what does it mean? How does it describe it? Spiritual maturity is growing up in Christ to think and act more like Christ. Think like him so that you can act like him. Know him so you can think like him so that you can act like him. Know him so that you know how he acts. Know him so you know how he thinks. Know him so you know who he is. See, we want to mature disciples because by making disciples and maturing disciples and multiplying disciples, we are going to see Jesus' worship 
multiplied. This is his mission for the church. To make disciples and mature disciples so that his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. Listen, if we don't do this, we don't cease to be his people. Like The churches that are missing this point don't cease to be the church. But they don't get to enjoy all that God intended for them to enjoy while they're waiting for his return. In fact, you can see it over and over. There's, there's these warnings and these concerns. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. Rather, do this. So without growing in spiritual maturity, the church will not give itself to selfless service. He, he shows us here. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. To, to, to perfect people, to complete people, to shape people so that they can be part of the work of ministry. We've got it so backwards. We've got it so wrong. And so many people put an emphasis on what happens on the stage and from the pulpit. And, and please hear me. I think it's important. But this isn't it. This isn't the end of it. In fact, this isn't even the bulk of it. You are each ministers of the gospel with a vital role to play. You have each been given gifts of grace that God intends you to use to bless his people with. I just get to be a part of you realizing it and recognizing it and equipping you, shaping you, empowering you so that you'll get up and go use it. I long for you to do that. I want you to be a part of this. I'm not the only one. The pastors that serve here, this is our desire for you. That you, together with us, would be serving the purpose of selflessly serving the needs of the church so that God would be glorified in us and among us. This is the right process. This is what he calls us to. That we do this so that the church is built up. If we don't do this, the church doesn't get built up. Not talking about growing in numbers. I'm talking about strengthening us, maturing us. It's important. I mean, just consider it like this. The, the right process is that an infant grows to be a toddler who grows to be a child who becomes an adolescent who then eventually becomes an adult. If that stops somewhere along the way, how do we react? If an infant never reaches toddler's stage, we mourn. If a toddler never becomes a child, we don't celebrate. If a child never grows into adolescence, why in the world would we celebrate the making of a disciple that we never get to be a part of maturing. If you can say you've made a disciple, but that disciple shows no evidence of maturing, were they ever made? That's something to be mourned over and grieved over. The reality is this, and I don't want to say this as gently as I can. I want to speak the truth in love. I 
I don't think there's an adult in the room. Jesus is the only adult you'll ever meet in this life. He's the only perfect one that is fully mature, that is fully grown, that has demonstrated his perfect, righteous holiness. The closest we can get in this life is adolescence. But even now, do we not give our teenagers jobs to do and responsibilities to feel to be a part of seeing them matured? To see them grow up to become contributing members rather than simply being hungry consumers. Yes. That's why we do it here in the church. Just take this gathering on Sunday morning for an example. We call you to serve here as a part of this mission of worship every Sunday morning. Not so that we can just put on a good show. It's not first and foremost our desire but so that God's people are matured as they use their gifts of grace to build up the body. Kids Way is the perfect example. You hear us calling for help there all the time. We're constantly lacking for help in our children's ministry. We went to two services less for need for room in the sanctuary and more for a desire to do that ministry well and to serve the people who are willing to commit in it and to serve them well. But you know who benefits the most from serving in kids' way? You might think the kids and the families of those kids, but I would suggest that it's the people who are serving in it. It's the testimony I hear over and over and over. Man, I'm learning so much. I have been so blessed. I thought a year, a commitment of a year to teach over there in the house was going to be difficult. And, and I'm not saying I don't ever feel the difficulty, but man, I, I love doing it, being a part of it, watching these children grow and seeing what Jesus is doing to me. We, we make room for service here, not because we need to do something, but because we love you enough to not try to do everything for you. And to seek to mature you as you take hold of this and serve alongside us. Without growing in that spiritual maturity, we're never going to see the selfless service. We're we're never going to become the people of worship and unity and service and mission without growing in spiritual maturity. Without growing in spiritual maturity, the church will never be eager to maintain unity. It's interesting, in this passage, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul directly ties the unity of the church that he called us to at the beginning of Ephesians 4. He directly ties the unity of the church to the maturity within the church. You know why there can't be unity in the church if there's no maturity in the church? Because like the infants and toddlers and children, and as I realized in the first service, the adolescents and the adults in your life that are immature can't be unified so long as we're first selfish and seeking our own gain in everything. Can't happen. Do you realize that the infants, and if you're a parent, you probably, if you're a parent of infants, you probably have already experienced this. You already know this. This is probably not news to you. But your infants crying in the crib in the middle of the night aren't, aren't, aren't concerned with you being tired. They don't care that you're tired and that you're feeling frustrated. All they care about is I want a bottle or a dry diaper. I don't, it could be one of a couple things. Your infants, as cute and lovable as they are, are selfish 
consuming, non-contributing, non-participating people. And they don't care a lick about you. I know it's a shock, but it's true. They don't have the capacity to. Do you realize that the toddler screaming, mine, 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 is more concerned with himself? And by the way, they all do that. And stealing toys from other little kids. Terrible twos, that's, we call that for a reason. They're not concerned about that little kid that had that toy first. They just see that toy and they want it as theirs because they're selfish. And do you realize they're not concerned to look about how that makes you look to other parents in the room? Because all they can think about is themselves and what they want. You see, we can't have unity in the church without maturity because it takes maturity, a level of maturity, to quit thinking about ourselves so that we can begin thinking about others. In fact, we hear this a lot. Well, I just feel disconnected. I don't feel, you know, part of the church. And, and I'm not, please hear me as I say this. I know there's room for us to grow. First, and I'm telling you, I know there's room for us to grow. But if you don't feel united in the church, it could, be very, it could very well be, and it probably is, that there's a spiritual maturity issue in the church. But if others are feeling connected and feeling united in the church, that spiritual maturity issue might be you. It's easy for us to blame it on everybody else because we're so busy thinking about ourselves. I know there's room for us to grow. There's a lot of work we have to do. That's why we're, we visit and revisit these things so often twice a year we talk about this kind of stuff. I'll be the first to admit my struggles. I recognize our structures aren't perfect. There's room for us to improve. But before you go blaming everybody else for the unity issues in this church, maybe the unity issue starts with your maturity issue. Let me just look at everybody in the room because I don't want you to think that I'm talking just to you, even though I'm talking just to you. And by the way, I didn't say this just off the top of my head. I've been thinking about it all week long. It belongs to me too. If we want to be a people who are united in the mission of worship, we must be a people who aren't just making disciples, but are also maturing disciples. Without growing in spiritual maturity, the church will not grow in knowing Jesus. Look at He says this. He says in verse 12, he says that he gave the prophets, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For the work of the ministry, doing the service, right? Building up the body of Christ for the benefit and blessing of God's people until we attain to the unity of faith. That's what he calls us to so that we're growing in unity and it doesn't end at the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We can't know Jesus more if we stay as infants. If we don't mature into uh, adolescence, 
We won't know Jesus more. We can't know him more. Now, it takes a, 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 an amount of knowledge to know Jesus. Uh, to, to be made a disciple, it takes some knowledge of who Jesus is. It takes some knowledge uh, or some knowing of Jesus to be made a disciple. And there will be disciples who end up in heaven who never knew him or never know him beyond simply just having come to know that he's died on a cross in our place for our sin, lived a perfect holy life, worked powerful miracles, demonstrated, and they won't know the the depths of who he is. But they'll still end up in heaven because they know him. But that's not his desire for us. His desire for us is to continue to know him, to know him more fully today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today. And this creates a simple cycle for us to follow for some of us, but it's also a vicious cycle if ignored. Let me just tell you the simplicity of this. It it doesn't change. It means it's the same process that never changes. How do I get made a disciple? I come to know Jesus. How do I mature as a disciple? I seek to know him more. I want to mature some more. I seek to know him more. So this is so important to Jesus that he has equipped his church. He's given his church mature Christians, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, not simply to teach about it, yes, to teach about it, but to exemplify it, to show them what it looks like, to show the church what it looks like, to teach about it, to shepherd people through it. He gave the church leaders to help them with this. And then he filled the scriptures full. Not a legalistic teaching but of gospel truth that every ounce of it, he points to him. He gave us the scripture. In fact, he confronts the Pharisees. John chapter 5, you can go look it up sometime. In John chapter 5, the, the, the Pharisees are, are, are wrestling around, and he's like, you, 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 you read the scriptures to, to justify yourself. When they were given to you to show you me. The scripture's full of Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And so in some ways, it's a very simple cycle, a very simple process. I get made a disciple by coming to know Jesus. I mature as a disciple by coming to know Jesus more. I think like Jesus more and then I act like Jesus more. But for some, this is a vicious cycle because rather than reading the scriptures to know Jesus, they read the scriptures to, to build their knowledge. I want to use words like propitiate and make it look like I know a lot. I want to win arguments. I want to prove people wrong. So I've got to read the scriptures. They seek to justify themselves. When I first began reading the Bible, I think I've shared this here before. When I first began reading the Bible, as God was doing his work in me, I was reading the Bible to justify my, my, my desire to drink alcohol. Doesn't say don't drink. Come on, I looked all over for it. It doesn't say anything about not drinking. In fact, Jesus made wine. Had all these great arguments to justify my drinking that always led to drunkenness. Oh, it does have something to say about that. No, the Bible doesn't teach us it's a sin to drink. But I was not seeking to, to drink to the glory of God. I was seeking to drink to get drunk. And then I was trying to use the scripture to justify myself in what I was doing. There's all kinds of people that do that. And some people, they, do, they, they, they read the scriptures not to, 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 to simply just seek to discredit it. The very thing they read, the very truth that's there, then becomes the truth that doesn't build them up but shuts them down. And we should mourn when infants don't become toddlers, that don't become children, that don't become adolescents, that can't grow to adulthood. We should mourn. 
Without growing in spiritual maturity, we will not grow in knowing Jesus. We will not grow in reflecting Jesus. If we don't mature, we can't begin thinking like Jesus. We can't begin acting like Jesus. His image in us won't grow. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He says that we are going to do this to attain the full, to unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're not finished until we look just like him, until his image, the image that we were created in, is fully restored in us. And it's not going to happen this side of heaven, but that's the process that starts so that we begin that process, so that we begin looking like him more and more and more, so that we begin to reflect his image more completely and more fully. And that's what we need from one another, but you know who else needs it from us? This city that we live in, this world that we walk in every day, the places we inhabit on a weekly basis need us reflecting Jesus. So not only does the church suffer if we don't grow in reflecting him, but so does the very city we live in. If we aren't reflecting Jesus to the church, we aren't reflecting Jesus to the world we live in. This is exactly what he called us to. We make disciples to see them matured. And we mature disciples to to move them, to mobilize them so that the church is blessed. And so that God's people live out in this world so that people can come in contact with someone who has been matured in their faith and they can see Jesus upon them. Without growing in spiritual maturity, the church will not grow in knowing Jesus, will not grow in reflecting Jesus, and the church will not endure in an unstable world. Verse 14. He calls us to to this work. He says that God's given us the abilities, given us what's necessary for it, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Man, there's all kind of talk today in church circles. I don't know if you hear it in the circles you move about in, but all kind of talk about how the church has lost its influence in the world. How the church doesn't seem to have the same level of respect in the world. The church just doesn't seem to seem to be as, as necessary in the world And I wonder if it's because we are being blown about by every wind of doctrine, chasing after every popular fad, just like children being tossed to and fro on the waves. See, there's a reality that one of the best testimonies to God's goodness and his grace and his power is not a Christian who never suffers, who never deals with difficult circumstances, who never has struggles in their life, but one who endures them in the midst of grace and who, as the, the, the world crumbles around them, experiences the peace of God that passes understanding. But that only comes with maturity. As long as we remain children, when the difficulty comes at us, we will not be stable. 
And if you suffer and respond to the difficulties of life like everybody else responds to the difficulties of life, why would anybody care about the God who you promote? He seems pretty powerless to me. See, Paul knows what's possible for the church when we mature. When the troubles come, we don't have to shake because we know Jesus and we know him more today than we did yesterday and the day before and the, and the year before. And for those that are immature, they are growing to maturity and they are becoming more and more stable. Without this spiritual maturity, the church will not endure in an unstable world. This is Jesus' mission for us. The, the church, it, it's making disciples and, and prioritizing the maturing of those same disciples so that his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church for the good of God's people, but for the glory of his name so that people come to know him and can worship him. And some of us, some of us sitting in this room, you're not maturing in the faith, not, not, not because there's not an opportunity for it, but because of your own sin and selfishness. And you need to repent. And you need, you need to repent and continue trusting in the Jesus that made you a disciple. Grow in that faith. Some of you aren't maturing because you never began maturing. Some of you aren't maturing because you were never made. And I told you, I'm a product of saying a prayer and walking an aisle, and God can use that to save people. I don't want to call your salvation into doubt if you've seen the fruit of his maturing work on your life. But if you feel comfortable to hold out your get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm just going to live my life, and I'm going to do my thing, and forget God, he'll be there when I need him, I'm concerned for you. I want to call you to repent. And I want to call you to begin believing in the Jesus that makes disciples so that you can begin maturing as a disciple. And some of you, some of us, are maturing. And for that, I praise God. And I've got, page, I've got like three pages of testimony that I would love to share with you this morning, but I will... I will close here. Testimony of what God's done among us across 10 years. Some of those testimonies, just what we've seen in the lives of people this last year. So excited to see his hand upon this church, and so we praise him for that. I want to continue, I want to encourage you to continue in repentance and continue in faith that you might continue in maturing. Let's pray.